Amen and good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning, beloved, uh, during Advent uh, as we celebrate and um, enter this season meditating and thinking on the God who came to save us, that he would be send forth his son uh, to live uh, in the fullness of humanity, truly God, truly man, uh, and not just be born, but be born in order to live a perfect life and then die a substitutionary death to save sinners. Our God is a God who comes after us, and we celebrate and see that very clearly every Christmas season. So I'm excited uh, as we continue our series in Matthew, even as we think on and meditate and sing songs uh, that focus us in on the incarnation of Christ, his first coming, and lead us to even anticipate and think about his second coming uh, when he takes us unto glory uh, in that time where there's no more tears, no more crying, no more death, but only Pureness and pure and full fullness of joy in his presence forever with, with he, our God, and we, his people. So let's pray again and ask for God's help as we study this morning. Father, I come to you through Christ our Lord and by the power of the Spirit. And uniquely with this text, this time of year, pleading, help me be a faithful under-shepherd to the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus, who's gentle and lowly in heart, and says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Help me to be a faithful, gentle pastor with a text and a topic that is sensitive and can be painful for so many. And yet, God, give me the boldness of truth. May I be like a faithful prophet willing to stand and say what your word has said. Not a coward afraid of the cultural moment, but faithful to your prophetic word. And I pray you would heal this morning. Bind up the brokenhearted. I pray you would correct this morning. Rebuke those who are in error. I pray you would sustain and encourage and draw us all into Christ. We pray in his name and for his sake. Amen. It's the most wonderful time of the year. There'll be much mistletoeing and hearts will be glowing when loved ones are near. It's the most Wonderful time of the year, so the old song goes. And in many ways, even as Pastor Jeremy prayed, for many that is true. Perhaps for most it is true. There's new lights showing forth the light of the world coming into the world that we set up and we decorate and we anticipate being together with loved ones. Being those loved ones, being near does bring forth a unique joy as we celebrate. But in a real world where there are broken relationships, where there is infertility, where there is death. Sometimes this is not merely the most wonderful time of year. Sometimes this is, and for some, the most painful time of year. Sometimes family gatherings are a painful reminder of loved ones who aren't there because they've gone on to glory or because the relationship in the family has been broken. Now, most years at King's Cross, we take a break from whatever series we're in in the middle of the fall and do an Advent series, kind of a four-week series where we think specifically on the coming of Christ. This year, we chose in God's province to continue through Matthew, and Lord willing, uh, shifted some things around, and at the beginning of next year, we'll continue through Matthew so that we come to even the resurrection on Easter Sunday in our study of Matthew. And so where that has us this Sunday morning is in a text Following King Jesus in a series we said we've called authentically Christian following King Jesus together in a text That talks to us about some of the most painful realities Particularly divorce and how that affects families It also talks to us about the most glorious realities that being marriage the two becoming one 
And so we come to a text that at least I know impacts everyone in the room. Everyone in this room in some way, shape, or form has been impacted by a good marriage or negatively impacted by a bad marriage, many of whom have been impacted by divorce and the brokenness that divorce brings to families. And so again, sometimes marriage and divorce and that very topic is that which makes this not the most wonderful time of year, but perhaps one of the most difficult times of year. Many people in this room live a drastically different life because of how marriage and divorce has impacted your family. Many of you are growing up in a home that has been impacted by divorce. Many of you have been divorced. Everybody in this room surely has pain associated with the topic of marriage and divorce. And so my prayer is that as we listen to the Lord Jesus respond to a trap set for him, a trap about marriage and divorce, that we will be encouraged by gospel hope, that we'll be instructed and corrected on what is marriage and what is biblically permissible divorce. And how ought we to respond no matter who we are and how this topic itself impacts our lives. I pray for those who have deep wounds associated with this topic. That as we go through this Advent season, you'll sense the nearness of our God who pursues and comes after hurting and suffering sinners and redeems and heals that which is broken. I pray that there be healing and hope in the gospel for all as we think about this this morning. I also pray for those in the room as I thought about this, who have too low a view of marriage. Those who are informed by the culture, not by Christ. And for those of you who are here, and this might describe you, I pray you'd be convicted by the Spirit, that you would leave with a more faithful and eventually fulfilling understanding of God's design and will when it comes to marriage. I pray that all of us would leave uh, submitted to King Jesus in his view of marriage, that all of us, like the author of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, would, would let marriage be held in high honor among us. So the main point this morning as we jump into Matthew chapter 19 during this Advent season is that God created, defines, and is the authority of marriage. And therefore, we must agree with Scripture that divorce and remarriage, unless the covenant has been destroyed by adultery or abandonment, is adultery. And we must offer the hope of the gospel to all as we look into these things. And so we're just going to walk through the text and be a little more conversational this morning uh, as we walk through the Lord Jesus and what he says about marriage and about divorce as he is kind of set up with this little trap. So first, I want you to see we naturally have a broken view of marriage. Naturally, we're broken people, and all of us in our brokenness naturally have a broken view of marriage. Most of us enter conversations about divorce and remarriage likely from one of two vantage points. Perhaps you grew up in a culture where anyone who was divorced for any reason was treated like a second-class citizen, like a person walking around with a flashing neon light on their head or a scarlet letter on their chest and treated like they were someone who was uh, a person to be avoided because of this painful topic. Maybe you were the innocent party in a marriage that ended because of adultery or abandonment, and still yet you felt shunned by your community or even by your church. Or you may come in with a totally different perspective, in some ways the opposite perspective. You've bought into the lie that God merely wants you to be happy, that you deserve to be happy. And if you aren't happy in marriage, you should just abandon it. And God will understand if you get a divorce because all he wants is for you to be happy and you to do whatever makes you happy. You may have said in your marriage for richer or poorer sickness and health, but you only intended to honor that commitment if you felt like it in the future. I'm 41 years old. 
The year before I was born, 1980, one biblical scholar wrote the following words. In the former era, when engaged in a pitched battle with liberalism, when resources were so limited and when society outwardly supported something similar to Christian ideals of marriage and divorce, how easy it must have been to ignore the whole question of divorce and remarriage. Though it was not entirely wrong to speak like that then, who can fail to see that it is wrong today? The war is being waged on a different front in our time. The battle lines are being drawn in the home. Unless we come forth now with the goods, we can wait no longer. All Christian values will be leveled, and with the counterparts in the unsaved world, the next generation of Christians will grow up following their feelings in these matters rather than following their biblical responsibilities. Forty-two years ago, he said, unless the church teaches on this, future generations will follow their feelings, not the scriptures. Dare I say those words ring prophetically true in our day. One group perhaps feels like divorce is always wrong no matter the scenario. Another group feels like divorce is always an option. But isn't this normally how it goes with our sinful hearts? Our broken human hearts are so broken, we usually tend towards rule-making or rule-breaking, legalism or licentiousness. Regarding divorce and remarriage, we prefer to have rules of never or whatever, (laughs) One extreme or the other. We'll create extra laws or we don't care about any laws at all. So what do we need? We need balance between legalism of yesteryear and license of today? No. We don't don't need a middle moderate view. What we need is to stop caring about what we think or surrounding culture thinks and return to the scriptures and say, Father, reform our view of what marriage is according to your word. Not what they said yesterday, not what they're going to say tomorrow, not what they're saying today. God, what do you say? This is what we need to do. We need to be informed by his word. In Jesus' day, there was also great conflict regarding the reasons for divorce. So again, look at Matthew chapter 19, verse 1. When Jesus had finished these things, that's the fourth discourse we just finished studying, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. So more of the same of his ministry that we've seen is that we trek through the Gospel of Matthew. He's preaching, he's teaching, he's healing. He's displaying great ministry and mercy uh, to the hurting, the sick, and he's proclaiming the kingdom. And as he's doing this, moving towards the cross, the Pharisees come up to him and, and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, are getting upset at the following Jesus is gathering around him. They want to get rid of him. And so in this moment, they want to trap him. They want to test him. And they know there's a raging debate going on among rabbis on what's permissible for divorce. So there's this fight and argument going on about marriage and divorce. They know that. And so they want to test Jesus and see if they can catch him in some kind of wrongdoing so they can end his influence and his leadership in this moment. And we see the test in this phrase should, can a man divorce his wife for any cause? There was a debate between two prominent rabbis in this day, two schools of thought about the interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. This says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if, he then, if then she find, uh, finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts, her, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. So this, the, the debate going on the day was this, what is this phrase, indecency in her? that can justify this writing a certificate of divorce. There were two schools of thought. One rabbi, Shammai, had a more rigorous interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. And he taught in that day that this finding some indecency meant a serious marital offense. 
something extremely indecent, as the, the word itself even communicated something scandalous involving nudity. Another school of thought, another rabbi, Hillel, had a more relaxed view about this term indecency in the wife. You could cite about anything you wanted to as indecent, and that be cause for divorce. John Stott, turning to Jewish historian Josephus, says it like this. Hillel interpreted this term in the widest possible way to include a wife's most trivial offenses. If she proved to be an incompetent cook and burnt her husband's food, or if he lost interest in her because of her plain looks and because he became enamored of some other more beautiful woman, these things were unseemly or indecent and justified him in divorcing her. So there's this debate going on. What's, what does it mean you find some indecency and you can give a certificate of divorce? Now, in our day, again, we live in a culture that encourages authenticity and transparency and following your heart and being true to yourself and being true to your feelings. And so many people would say, no, divorce is justifiable as long as you're not happy. Well, then just divorce. You should do whatever makes you happy. So most in our day almost would side with Hillel. Like there's plenty of reasons why you could get a divorce. Our culture's view of marriage is naturally broken, and we need to understand we're naturally broken people, and so this view has impacted us. So what that means is we all secondly need our view of marriage corrected by Jesus, all of us. And that's what I love about the Lord Jesus. I love how he answers questions. He rarely answers the actual question that's posed to him, and instead he shines light of truth into the dark heart and exposes flawed motives in the questioner. So he's like, you're asking me a question, trying to trap me. I already see that. I'm God in the flesh. (laughs) And so I'm going to respond in such a way that points out your motive in asking this question. I'm not even going to deal with the question at first. He'll get there. But primarily what I'm going to do first is deal with the heart of the questioner. He exposes that our broken hearts, just like the rabbis and Jews of his day, look to naturally look to the wrong place, cultural opinions around us, or look to the right place, the scripture, but with the wrong motives. In this case, trying to find a way out of marriage. So again, some are saying, hey, do whatever you want to do. Divorce for any reason. Many people today would say that. Many Christians would say, oh yeah, we should just follow that. Yet on the other side, this other school of thought is looking to the scripture, interpreting the scripture, trying to be rigorous in the scripture, but they're still saying, yeah, but what we want is a way out. What we want to know is when can we get out? So either way, both motives and both hearts are saying, how can I get out of something in that is called marriage? And so Jesus says in verse 4, He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus knows the debate, the raging debate among the rabbis of his day. He knows their debating interpretation of scripture. And so he asked them, have you not read? Brothers and sisters, before we can even get to their debate and what they were saying, I just want to ask you the question, have you even read? Have you ever thought, what does the Bible say about marriage and divorce? Or have you merely listened to the cultural rabbis of your day and just assumed they're telling you and what they're telling you is true? Or have you actually said, what does the Bible say? What does God say? Have you read? Have you even read? Would be the question, I think, in our day, particularly for the younger among us. Have you ever studied the issue, this issue in the Bible? Have you ever searched the relevant passages? Do you know what the Bible actually says? Or are you merely, merely, again, following the cultural rabbis of your day? And notice what Jesus does in answering their question. He takes them back to the beginning by quoting Genesis 1.27, Genesis 2.24. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. 
And then Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus shows them and us by implication. When we come asking questions about how we can get out of the covenant, we're asking the wrong questions, and therefore we'll inevitably get the wrong answers when we center the conversation around current cultural debates. So it's like if you come asking the question, hey, how can I get out? Who's right on when I can get out? The fact you're asking and approaching the whole conversation by getting out means you've forgotten what the whole thing is to begin with. So he says, let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to the original design of what this is before we can then actually answer the right questions in the right way. They're starting with debates about that which is broken and fallen. They've forgotten to go back to the divine design for marriage. They've forgotten what the author of marriage intended when he wrote the one flesh union into the story of humanity. And any time you forget the author, you erase the authority. And any time you erase authority, you replace authority. So anytime you're like, no, 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 I don't care what God has to say, you insert a new authority. And in our day, we've said we don't care what God has to say, my feelings are the authority. Like you can't erase an authority without putting a new one in the place. And this is what Jesus is demonstrating and showing even in our day. The debates rage about who can marry who, and it has nothing to do with God. It's as if God is irrelevant to the conversation. That's because we assume naturally as human beings marriage is our idea. And therefore, we can define and regulate it by our ever-changing opinions and definitions of love and sex and marriage. We think we're the author. We rejected the author of it, and we insert our place in his place. And we replaced him with this new authority, which is the individual self's desires. But according to Genesis 1 and 2, an interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2 from the Gospels, from the Epistles, particularly from this text, from Paul's teaching in Ephesians 5 and 1 Corinthians 7, from the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 3, among others, God designed marriage to fill the earth with the glory of God through the Gospel of God. That's why marriage exists, to fill the earth with image bearers that reflect His glory and ultimately, Paul, as Paul teaches in Ephesians 5, to show forth and be a picture of the gospel of God. God made them male and female with reproductive abilities so they could reproduce and fill the earth with God-glorifying image bearers. And this is supposed to be a picture of gospel. Husbands are supposed to love their wives like Christ loved the church and give ourselves up in sacrificial service for their good. Wives are to demonstrate strong submission to their husbands like, like the church does unto Christ. Marriage is meant to show the watching world what Christ's relationship with the church looks like. This is why he made male and female anatomy. This is why sexual union and reproduction works like it does. This is why he references male and female so the marriage relationship, the two, might become one flesh union and in so doing, in this way, in this design, reproduce image bearers and give forth life like God who gives forth life. This is why Christians cannot support same-sex marriage. Because this would misrepresent God's design for marriage as a picture of Christ in the church. Same-sex marriage will give a picture of Christ with Christ or church with church. It, it, it messes up the design. The whole point of marriage, husband and wife, is point to Christ and church. So if you redefine this, you redefine the whole design, you've put yourself in the place of the author of the whole thing. The complementary differences between male and female are beautiful and uniquely glorify God. We do not have the power or authority to usurp his design. As Christians, we lovingly represent and argue for his design for the sake of his glory and for the good of human flourishing. Friends, rejecting God's design never ends well for humanity, no matter what humanity believes. 
But that's just an aside that you have to address in our day when you're talking about male and female. (laughs) Jesus' main point, the main thing he's highlighting, is the author didn't design the marriage covenant to include participants that have their eyes on the way out. Jesus exposes the wicked hearts of those who would test God and points out the marriage is designed to be permanent. Look at verse 6. So there are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. See, we see one of the fundamental problems in our view on marriage and divorce is that we think marriage is primarily something we did and therefore primarily something we can undo. But you do not join yourself to a spouse in marriage. God does. And you're not to determine what releases you from a marriage. God is. He designed marriage. He gave the gift of companionship. He gave the gift of sexual intimacy. He's the one who designed male and female so they could lead forth and produce children and life and, and, and uh, reproduced image bearers. He's the one who walked Adam the first, or walked uh, Eve the first bride to Adam the first groom. He's the one who says, when I did this, I had Christ in the church in mind. He's the one who wrote the Bible and opened with a marriage and ends it with a marriage. Adam and Eve in the beginning pointing to Christ in the church in the end. And marriage itself is supposed to be a pointer and picture of that final thing. He's the one who did this and it's lovely and beautiful and right and true. This is his design, his decision, his doing. He joins the two together. That means everybody in this room, you're not the author of your marriage. Therefore, you're not the authority of your marriage. And we see depravity in the human heart in that what God, uh, in the fact that he made the two become one, we think we can be God-like in reverse and make the one become two. So here's what we got to do. We got to be honest and acknowledge our brokenness. Now, you might be saying, but hold up, Clint, you, you mentioned adultery and abandonment. I thought you said there are biblical reasons for divorce. We're going to get there. And we're going to bring forth gospel uh, help and, and healing. But notice, even they are like, hold on, whoa, 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 time out, time out. The Bible does address divorce, Jesus. So we're going we're to jam you up about that. So they ask in verse 7, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Now, again, we see how broken the Pharisees, indeed, all of us are. They've just heard Jesus say, you must consider the divine design. You're asking a question, but you've forgotten the whole design to begin with. So he takes us back to that divine design, which is what we've just done. Now they're saying, yeah, but time out. But we know the scriptures also address divorce. So what about that? What about Moses' command in Deuteronomy chapter 24? So again, let's read the passage they're talking about and where the debate itself centers around. Deuteronomy chapter 24, and we'll read one through four this time. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she's been defiled, for that's an abomination before the Lord. And you should not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given you for inheritance. So there's a few things we need to notice about this debate that's going on, a clear misinterpretation of what Moses even said. Number one, notice Moses didn't command divorce. They asked Jesus, why then did Moses command divorce? Moses is not commanding divorce. He's regulating the practice of it in a fallen world. He's not commanding it. No, instead what he's doing is he's protecting women in a society where they'd have been very vulnerable. A divorced woman could not go work a nine to five and take care of herself. Either she would have to go back to her father or have another husband. And if she couldn't go to another husband because she had been divorced and there was no certificate of divorce that meant she could remarry, now she may get into sex trafficking and be abused. 
And so Moses is like, time out. You're not allowed to marry. Give us a certificate of divorce because you find some indecency or, or not do that. You got to give a certificate so she's able to remarry. And then you can't go back and remarry her because you change your mind later and abuse her. So he's regulating a broken practice, not commanding it's what must be done. And yet these scribes, these, are, 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 these schools of thought are debating, says, why does Moses command this? Moses didn't command it. So notice both of them are wrong. So Moses was making sure the woman got a certificate of divorce so that she's able to remarry legally in, in order to protect her. So Moses didn't command, he merely regulated this practice. But the question is, why did Moses have to do, do this? Jesus responds to that. Look at verse 8. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed, not commanded, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So Jesus says, no, no, the wickedness of the human heart is why divorce happens. It wasn't designed to be this way. He didn't design marriage for two people to get married and have an eye on a way out. One commentator said the divorce regulations were a concession to deal with the result of sin, not an expression of the way God intended things to be. Divorce might be necessary, but it can never be good. So again, God, divorce was never God's design for humanity and marriage. These Pharisees had twisted Deuteronomy chapter 24 to command, and then were trying to teach people. But both schools of thought were wrong. Both schools of thought misinterpreted scripture because they wanted to be justified in having a way out. And again, we learn something here about the sinful human heart. We're willing to twist God's word to do what we want to do. And this is not new. What happens in the, in, in the garden? Do you remember what Satan said to Adam and Eve? Did God actually say? Like, if, can we twist these scriptures to do what we want to do? And this is what both schools of thought were doing. How can we twist these scriptures to find out what gets us free of something God never intended us to be thinking about how to get free from to begin with? What a warning this is for sinners like us. We must acknowledge our view of marriage is broken because we're broken and divorce happens because of humanity's brokenness, not because of God's design. And then we must submit to the king's view. Unbiblical divorce and remarriage is adultery. Unbiblical divorce and remarriage is adultery. So having acknowledged our brokenness in his design, we now submit to Jesus' correct interpretation of the scriptures. Unbiblical divorce and remarriage is adultery. Look at verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual morality, we're going to deal with that exception clause in just a minute, and marries another commits adultery. So King Jesus says the correct understanding of the law, the below-the-surface heart of the issue that reveals when a man unbiblically divorces his wife and marries another. He makes his wife commit adultery when she remarries, and if he remarries, he makes the other person commit adultery. So any unbiblical divorce results in four people, uh, and then remarriage results in four people committing adultery. This is why Malachi 2.16 communicates that God hates divorce. Because divorce happens because the hardness of human's heart, the human heart. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Often, again, leads to four people committing adultery. And again, friends, we're, we're going to get to gospel hope and reality and talk about the exceptions. But all of us experientially can acknowledge divorce messes families up. It hurts. It's painful. So God, in giving these regulations, is not being mean and harsh. He's trying to give us that which brings forth blessing and fruit and life. Broken families lead to broken families, and that hurts. That's why Christmas can be so difficult for so many and so Jesus argues for lifelong marriage, God's desires that never be divorced. Now, most of you are probably thinking, rightly so, my God, that's hard. That's hard. 
It's what Jesus' disciples were thinking. So you're not alone in, in responding and thinking that way. I'm not alone in preaching through or studying through this. Thing. I mean, this is going to be really hard to preach. I'm just like these disciples. So they respond. They're overwhelmed by this marriage covenant. They're overwhelmed by what Jesus says. Verse 10, the disciples said to him, if, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to be at Mary. So the disciples are like, dang, Jesus, this is so hard. We'll just stay single. Like, so even notice followers of Christ are more impacted by the culture around them such that when Jesus gives them right interpretation, they're like, ooh, this feels too hard. And they had watched him raise the dead. They'd watched him heal the sick. They'd watched him walk. They'd seen all his, they know, they've seen, they've confessed he's Messiah. And when Messiah teaches on marriage, they're like, whoa, that's too difficult. So we shouldn't be shocked if that's our response either. This feels difficult. It, they were with Christ in the flesh, and that was their response. But he said to them, verse 11, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who's able to receive it, receive it. Now, I, can't, I don't have a ton of time to get into what eunuchs were and the complexities of all that, but I want you to notice something. Jesus is saying there are those who are bound to celibacy for a number of reasons. Some make their own choice, some's because of brokenness of the world and their bodies, uh, some other people made the choice for them, but either way, what he's saying and what he shows and what he teaches, like Paul, singleness as a calling uh, can be a calling and gift for some in the kingdom. That there are those who God gives a gift of singleness and celibacy. They're not those that are like, man, I don't want to be single, I'd rather be married. No, no, like they receive a gift and they appreciate that gift. So Paul's going to make the argument, let each one receive the gift that God has given to them. But also, I want you to notice, especially for those who are single today, who aspire to be married and are saying, man, can I even live a full life at this point? Of course you can. Jesus was the perfect human being. He was single. Paul the apostle was single. You can live a full human life with full human experience following Christ and Paul and their example by being single. So you understand this is, singleness even is a gift that God gives to some people. So again, Jesus is demonstrating this as he answers this question. He says, no, it's a gift given to some. Let the ones who receive it, receive it. But this is where we then come together with all that Jesus is teaching. So we've got to acknowledge our view of marriage is broken because we're broken. We've got to be corrected by God's good design. We've got to submit to Christ who says that any unbiblical divorce is adultery. But what about that exception clause? So when he said except for adultery, why am I saying any unbiblical divorce? Where do we find hope? Also, if we're on the wrong side of all of this. So you should be asking, what's a biblical divorce? What do we even mean by that? What's a permissible divorce? But then also you should be asking the question, well, if it wasn't biblically permissible, where do I find hope now? What do I do on this side of an unbiblical divorce? So what I want to do now is a little more uh, topical or topositional, if you will. I want to address that the scriptures say there are two biblical grounds for divorce. This is what we believe uh, most conservative uh, theological evangelical Christians believe there are two biblical grounds for divorce. That being adultery and abandonment. So all divorce is a result of sin, but not all divorce is necessarily sinful. So all divorce is because of sin, but not every divorcee sinned. So we got to ask the question, okay, how do I know if I sinned or not in the midst of this divorce? In other words, God does recognize certain divorce as permissible, even if not preferable. So we always want reconciliation. We always want to want redemption, but we live in a broken world and God does permit divorces in two cases, adultery and abandonment. Again, look at first we'll think about adultery. Matthew chapter 19, verse nine. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. 
So there's an exception right there. Jesus says, I'm talking about something, but there's, there's an exception to what I'm saying and teaching in this moment. This exception clause in Matthew 19, 9, and then back in chapter 5, verse 32, has been greatly debated. I don't have time in the sermon to get into the nuances of all of the arguments. Much of the debate sur- uh, surrounds the fact that Jesus used the word, when it says sexual morality, used the Greek word porneia, rather than the word moikeia. I don't know if I'm saying that right or not. Dustin does, and he'll make fun of me later if it's wrong. But rather than that one, which clearly means adultery, So he used the word for immorality rather than the word for adultery. So anyone who does this except for sexual immorality. So some scholars are going to argue then what he's talking about is not divorce in marriage. What he's arguing about is during the betrothal period, what we would call engagement culturally. That if they broke off the engagement. So some would say, no, no, Jesus is not talking about divorce and marriage. He's talking about divorce from engagement. Now, I think that's a weak hermeneutical argument. Because I think clearly in chapter 19, verse 3 through 9, the whole thing's about marriage. So I don't know why he would talk about marriage for all of these verses, but then use one word and say, oh, I'm not talking about marriage, I'm talking about engagement. Like, it just doesn't make sense to me contextually to build that argument. Again, it's more complex, but I don't have time to get there. Porneia itself, even sexual immorality is the con- in the context of marriage, is a form of adultery. I think it fits the context with everything Jesus is saying. And it makes sense that this was the prevailing assumption in Jewish and Roman culture, since Jewish law said that an adultery was punishable by death. So everybody would have assumed, no, 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 like a marriage is ended because of adultery. So that's the assumption of this day, even as this word is used. Even the Old Testament, God divorced Israel for Israel's unfaithfulness. Hosea chapter 1, verse 9, Jeremiah 3, 8. So it's not hard to assume that when you look at Mark and Luke and you don't see them include this exception clause, it's because they already assumed it. The Jews of the day would have assumed this exception to begin with. So again, the first permissible ground for divorce is your spouse commits sexual immorality with another. If you get divorced for that reason, then you're not in sin, and we believe free to remarry, and that's not in sin. So that's not what Jesus, so he said, if you've been the innocent spouse in the situation of adultery, you're free to divorce and remarry, you're not in sin. Now, I also want to go to a second exception that, again, most theologically conservative, biblical scholars, pastors, churches acknowledge to be permissible. Flip with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So, exception number one, adultery. Exception number two, abandonment. Exception number two, abandonment. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we'll begin in verse 10. The Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes, To the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. So Paul's saying, I'm repeating what Jesus has said right here. So the Lord's given this. You've heard him say it. I'm repeating this. I'm I'm, I'm repeating his teaching. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So Paul affirms Jesus' teaching that there is no divorce. And in this case, he says, if you divorce, you should remain unmarried or be reconciled to your spouse because anything else would be adultery. So he's, he's saying, I'm teaching consistently with what we just heard from Jesus in Matthew chapter 19. And again, with most scholars, I'm assuming Paul has in his mind the exception for adultery that Jesus taught in Matthew 19, in Matthew chapter 5. He's assuming that even as he says that. But then he's going to move on to a topic Jesus did not speak about, and that is abandonment. Now, why would Jesus not talk about that? Well, because in redemptive history, we're a different place. When Jesus was talking about marriage and divorce, he's talking to only the people of God in context. When we get to Corinthians, the gospel's gone forth into pagan lands. And so what you have now contextually for the first time is you have some households that have a Christian spouse and a non-Christian. 
And apparently some of, the, some of the Christians and Corinthians were saying, no, no, you can't be married to a non-Christian. You've got to get divorced. You can't have a Christian married to a non-Christian get divorced. So apparently that's what's going on. So now Paul's going to address that. And Paul says, whoa, 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 time out. I disagree. You don't have to get divorced. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12. To, to the rest I, I say, I, not the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean it's not authoritative, inspired scripture. He's saying Jesus didn't say this. We're at a different place in redemptive history. But he's, he's an apostle. He's saying this. That if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So he's saying if you find yourself in a situation where you're married to a non-Christian and the non-Christian's willing to stay, then stay. And not only that, he says, and let me give you extra motivation of why you ought to stay. Look at verse 14. For the unbelieving husband's made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Verse 16 lets us know when, when Paul's saying holy, right, he's not talking about uh, what it means to be saved. He's saying, no, 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 like you're set apart. You're, you're of the people of God. You've been saved. And your unbelieving spouse and your children now have access to the gospel because of you. Who knows? Maybe God will save your unbelieving spouse and your children through your witness in the gospel. And you're the fact that you're a part of the people of God. So he's like, no, no, no. If they'll stay, stay. Who knows? Maybe God will actually use you to take and lead them even unto himself. They have amazing exposure to God's grace and covenant community because of you. So like 1 Peter 3.1, he's like, stay, who knows? You may win them even to the gospel. Then he continues, verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved or bound. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you'll save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So notice what he says, as the unbelieving spouse leaves, then the believer is no longer bound. Again, I, along with most conservative theological uh, pastors, uh, believers, scholars would say, no longer bound means you're free from the covenant, free to divorce, free to remarry. You're not in sin if you do that. That's the most simple reading uh, that you would read of this text. So if the non-Christian abandons marriage, the Christian spouse is no longer bound to the marriage covenant, therefore free to remarry. They are not sinning. Now, these are the only two clearly biblically permissible grounds for divorce, divorce, adultery and abandonment. You may ask, and I think you ought to ask, it'd be good to ask, what about abuse? So what do, we, what do we think about abuse in the context of marriage? Now, abuse in one way is tricky but because of how subjective it can be. In other words, if a husband says, she doesn't respect me, that's a form of emotional abuse. Okay, we, we would disagree, right? So that's not abuse. However, we're talking about physical or emotional safety at stake because of the harm of a spouse, we believe and would teach even the elders of the church would believe abuse can be a form of abandonment. That when Paul says, if the unbelieving spouse abandons, that's not merely talking about changes like address, changes brick and mortar where they live, but abandons the role of husband. So if a husband is abusing his wife and children, he's abandoned the role of protector and provider that a husband is supposed to be. So a wife may have to separate from an abusive husband and father because he's abandoned the role of husband and father. So we believe that abuse can be a form of abandonment uh, in, in certain cases, and therefore also a person would be free to divorce and remarry and not be in sin. So we don't think merely in that case the wife separating and getting the children's safety. And it could, be, it could go in the reverse as well. But uh, the wife uh, separating and getting the children uh, to safety, that's not her abandoning the marriage. That's her recognizing the husband's already abandoned the marriage by abusing and uh, victimizing those he's supposed to protect and provide for. Either way, as elders of this church, we always want to pray for redemption and reconciliation. That's the hope. So in the case of abuse, we would separate and protect. 
And we would not think about a rejoining until there's clear safety for everyone involved. But in the case of adultery, it's beautiful to see reconciliation in marriage. In the case of abandonment, beautiful to see reconciliation. Even in the case of abuse, as long as the abuse has stopped and the, the people are safe, safe, uh, it's glorious to see reconciliation. That's the hope. However, in these cases, if you're the innocent spouse and you pursue a divorce because of those things, we do not believe you're in sin. The, the scriptures have given this uh, permission, not prescription, but permission, not command, but ability because we live in a broken world. So I want to conclude with a few applications and some gospel hope. Because again, preaching a sermon like this, and there's so many different people in the room with so many different experiences and so many different places. So I want to try to make a few applications. Healthy married couples, keep fighting for your marriage. Get and give help proactively with other couples and with singles. Resolve by God's help to keep growing in your marriage and in your oneness. Resolve divorce is not an option. And never let it be a weapon in an argument, ever, in a Christian home. Never. He didn't design marriage with you talking about a way out. That undermines and threatens the very health of the marriage. So divorce is never an option in the conversation in the heat of an argument. Cool off, calm down, forgive, reconcile. Go back to last week's sermon because that's what you need in marriage. <laughs> but, but resolve, it's not an option. To the struggling married couples, reach out for help. Reach out to the elders. We'll do anything we can to help. Whatever it looks like. Point you to resources, get you counseling, pay for counseling. Like whatever it takes, we're willing to help. Marriages go through hard seasons, highs, highs, and low lows. If you're in a low low, ask for help. It's okay. Other marriages have been there. You're not alone. But resolve, divorce is not an option. Get help. Say, I'm weak. We need help. Get the help you need. Now, to those who realize you committed adultery in your second marriage, what are you to do? Well, you repent of your sin by agreeing with God that you are in sin. You confess your adultery to Christ and to one another. You apologize to the involved parties that need to be apologized to, namely to children and former spouse. And then you meditate on God's amazing grace to you in your current marriage. And you stay faithful to that marriage. But you're like, First John says to us, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us for unrighteousness. He doesn't mean for you to walk around in the guilt and shame. He means for you to confess your sin and to receive the peace of his mercy and forgiveness and to be faithful in your current marriage. Those who realize you didn't commit adultery in your divorce. Like, let loose of the guilt and shame. If you did nothing wrong, you did nothing wrong. Don't carry around the scarlet letter. Don't assume people are judging you like something's wrong with you. Assume people's heart goes out to you with compassion because of what you've been through. And walk in freedom. And pursue marriage if that's what you want to do. Walk in that freedom. If you were the victim, don't carry around guilt. Those who are in the midst of adultery and abandonment, even now, if you're the innocent party, know that you're not alone. We're with you and we'll walk beside you and we'll help any way we can. If you're the guilty party, repent and return to your spouse and to your relationship with Christ and do whatever it takes to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And if you have no desire to repent, you should assume there's a good chance I'm not a Christian. God desires for you to repent. If you're in the middle of adultery or abandoning your family, he desires for you to repent. There's no question in Scripture on this one. If you have no desire, you should say, I'm not even sure I have the Spirit of God. I've at least quenched the Spirit and grieved the Spirit such that I don't even feel conviction. But re repent. Come. 
all you are unfaithful. We just sang that song, come. Like Christ came for you. So this Christmas season, even if you're in that moment right now, we say repent, flee out of it. He came for you. He sent forth his son for sinners, not for those who have it together. Christ Jesus didn't come to die to save perfect marriages, to save perfect brides and grooms. He, saved, he came to save sinners. Those who understand I'm not a perfect bride, I'm not a perfect groom. I need a savior. So we would say repent, flee to him. He's come for you. Think on this Christmas season. He's come. You don't have to wreck your life or your family. Return to Christ. Let us help. Singles engaged dating. Do not enter into relationships that cannot lead to marriage, which include dating a non-Christian. Do not take marriage lightly. Go into dating and marriage with the conclusion, Jesus is Lord of my dating, engagement, and marriage. Divorce is not an option. And involve and ask other people to help you along the way. Newly single people via divorce or death. Widows and widowers, widowers, you're permitted to remarry should you want to, assuming they're in the Lord, Romans 7, 1 through 3, and 1 Corinthians 7, 39. But also know if you're hurting during this Christmas season and you feel alone, let somebody know. You can come to the Doris house Christmas morning if you ain't got nowhere else to go. Like, let somebody in your faith family know. Like, if you feel alone and abandoned and hurt because of the death of a spouse, please don't be alone during this season. Please reach out and ask for help. If you're newly single via unbiblical divorce, seek biblical reconciliation with your spouse if, if possible. Ask your pastors for help. We're willing to jump in and help. If not, seek wisdom, prayer, and counsel from the scripture with your pastors to say, what does it look like for me to be faithful in my scenario? Everyone, everyone hope in Christ and his gospel. We come to God through a faithful, crucified, and resurrected bridegroom. He died for adulterers. He died for those who divorced unbiblically. He died for the rebellious, that we might repent of our sin and find life in him. So rest in the Christ who's always been faithful to his bride. Rest in the one who will never leave nor forsake his bride. Rest in the one who is even more faithless remains faithful. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. That's why even if all of the rest of your experiences during this season are painful, you have hope. Your God came to save you. He came to save you. Even if it's not the most wonderful time of the year, he came to save you and to take you to the most wonderful eternity for forever. And he's the perfect groom awaiting for us. And the, bride, or the church will be his bride. We all eventually in Christ have a perfect marriage forever. That's coming for everyone. So no matter how much we suffer during these seasons, we know that one's coming. And that brings us hope to be faithful to him even now. And let us offer the hope of the perfect bridegroom who died for an unfaithful bride to wash her and make her clean. Let us offer that hope to the world. That's the perfect marriage we all long for. That's the perfect marriage we all long for, Christ and his church. And it's coming, beloved. Wherever you're at in your journey today, he has grace for you to meet you there. He loves you and cares for you. Cling to him. And may our marriages be imperfect pointers to that perfect marriage that is sure to come to all who are in Christ. Non-Christian friend, we understand this is an interesting Advent sermon for you to have attended. <laughs> but we would say to you, what you long for is a perfect marriage. It's eternally available if you would look to Christ. And all who look to Christ, because of his blood and mercy, can have that perfect marriage forever. So join us by looking to him. Those who are suffering and need help in your marriage, please reach out. We love you and we want to help. His grace and mercy is available. Let's close in prayer.